We're continuing our series of just as statements that we find in the New Testament. Just as, obviously meaning that uh, something is in a similar fashion to the statement that would follow just as, whatever it is, then there is something that is a blessing or an instruction for us that follows from that. And these are all statements of the Lord Jesus that we've been considering. We'll take our reading today from John chapter 15. A number of the just as statements of the Lord were during his upper room discourse, as it's known, when he was with his disciples the night before his crucifixion. So we're going to read the first uh, 12 verses of John 15. Our focus verses are verses 9 and 10. You won't see in the NIV the words just as, but the start of verse 9 says, as the Father. It just misses the word just, but look for that when we come to it. John 15, verse 1, the words of the Lord Jesus. I am the true vine and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Here, in our focus texts of verses 9 and 10, the Lord Jesus is saying that the Father has loved him and he is going to, the Lord Jesus, is going to love his disciples in the same way. We have to be very clear on this, that uh, the Lord Jesus is saying that the Father has loved him The Lord Jesus, the man who is God, who has lived his life in public view uh, for the previous number of years and so on. The Father has loved him because of his obedience to the commands of the Father. That fits with the context of what the Lord has started to say in John 15. As he's with his disciples, Judas the betrayer having gone out, he's sitting there with those who believe that he is the Messiah though they are yet to understand what the work of Messiah involves, yet they are believers in him. And his challenge to them is, as the Father has loved me in my life of obedience, so I will love you if you're obedient to me as well. Remain in me. You're the branches. I am the vine. Remain in me. So this is to do with relationship to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was the ideal Israelite. He is the perfect human being. He kept the law of God completely and fully in everything. And he was without sin. 
John, when he's later writing a letter, says in 1 John 3 verse 5, he says, you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins and in him is no sin. It was for that reason that Jesus said, the Father loves me. We are sinners and thank God we are saved by his grace and are brought into now a a capacity that we didn't have in our fallen, unregenerate state. A new capacity now to choose to obey God's things, God's commands, God's instructions, as they have come to us in God's word and as they are repeated for us or given new understanding through the teaching of the Lord Jesus and through the apostles. And it's through that obedience that we then experience an ever-deepening relationship with the God who is love. And we experience more of his love day by day as we do what the Lord Jesus is saying here. As the Father has loved me, verse 9, so have I loved you. It was because he had seen the disciples' obedience to him to that point. Just as the Father had seen the obedience of his Son, the Lord had seen the obedience of his disciples. And he says, as the Father has loved me for my obedience, I love you for your obedience. Now remain in my love. You remain in this place. Remain in this place of love. The previous verses with the illustration that the Lord used of him being the vine and the branches was with the purpose that the disciples, the individuals, would bear fruit for the glory of God. As the Lord Jesus taught and as the disciples and the apostles in their teaching then give us throughout the scriptures hereafter, is that loving obedience is expected as a natural response to the love of God that has come to bring us into the life that God has for us in Christ Jesus. And then to do the works that God has prepared beforehand for those he has saved by grace, Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 10. Now when we do that, the Lord Jesus says here, and we live that way in close relationship with our Lord, in obedience to the things that he has said, which are an extension and an explanation of the things that God has declared in his word, then to live that way and bearing fruit gives glory to God. I have to stress this, that this love here is different from what we might say is God's saving love. In fact, in the scriptures, I think we see God's love in, in various ways. And it's, it's sometimes a problem for us just to generalize it and we have to see that God loves in different ways um, depending on who the objects of his love are. don't really have time to get too stuck on all of the, the, the different variations here but there is a distinct love between God the Father and God the Son, the eternal Son that is revealed to us in the pages of Scripture that we're not getting at here. It's not that love that the Father has for the eternal Son that Jesus is referring to here. That's a unique love that has existed among the Trinity, the three persons of God, from all of eternity. That is not the love that the Lord Jesus is referring to here in verse 9. Yes, he has known the love of the Father from all eternity as God the Son and God the Son has loved the Father and God the Father has loved the Spirit and there's 
There's this interplay. It's the necessity of the Trinity in a logical working out of who God is. For God to be love, there must be three. But that's for another time. Just take that away and think it through. Two's not enough. It must be three. But what we then think of is God has a love for all that he has made. We don't have time to dwell on that, but we could say that's God's providential love for everything. He provides for all creatures, even fallen humanity and those who rebel against him. God still provides. That is an expression of the love of God. God also, we would see from Scripture, has what I've already referred to as God's saving love. might otherwise be said it's God's sovereign electing love. It's here and it's plain in scripture for us. That God has chosen from all eternity in Christ, Ephesians chapter 1 and other texts, to set his love on some and to bring them to himself. A settled decision of God at some time in the eternal past, if we can even conceive of that, that in Christ he would choose some to come and experience his great salvation. It's all of his power and it's received by us as a gift of grace, not something we earned. So that is God's sovereign electing love. Ephesians 1 verse 4, just to repeat the text. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. It's in Christ who is the object of his love from all eternity that we experience the sovereign electing love of God. What we're talking about here is not that love. The love we're talking about here is what we might refer to as God's covenantal love. It's a love that God has for those he has brought to himself in his sovereign electing love. And it's a love that comes with conditions. That's why I think we need to be careful that we don't simply always refer to the love of God as an unconditional love. Because when you read the scriptures, and particularly in the Old Testament, which are to instruct us about today, we see that God's love is conditional. I'm reading through the book of Deuteronomy just at the moment. Moses' instruction to the generation that's about to go in and take the promised land. Moses taking his opportunity to instruct them about the law that God gave them at Sinai. The people he had redeemed for himself in his grace and in his love. His sovereign electing love to bring a people out. He brings them to Mount Sinai, constitutes them a people and gives them the instructions by which they are to live. They have no part in the salvation from Egypt other than to trust God. But when it came to Sinai, then God says, I make my covenant with you. I will be faithful to it and God is never unfaithful to anything he says. But you be faithful to me and you will enjoy the benefits of my love and blessing that come. It's a love relationship that God enters into with those who are the recipients of his regenerating work. God is the one who having lavished his love on us in salvation then stipulates for us the life we are to live. And the Lord Jesus refers to that sort of life as being a place of love where we know the love of God and also being a place or a realm of joy, whatever the circumstances might be. 
And the Lord Jesus had joy in everything that he did, even when it took him to the greatest of sufferings. You know, for those who are born again, the work of God in his free grace, which he gives to us, not on the basis of our goodness, there's nothing in us that causes God to love us, as God said to Israel in Deuteronomy 7, I set my love on you because I set my love on you. It's my choice, my will. The expectation is then that that new life that we receive in Christ would be manifested in us, in us doing the works that God has said. I've prepared them before. These things that you'll walk in, it's a lifestyle. The Lord Jesus calls us to live that lifestyle. So we see that the love of God is conditional here because the Lord Jesus refers to it. He says, as the Father has loved me, I'm stressing again, I believe this is in his life as a man here on earth and the perfections of his obedience. He says, so I have loved you. I love you too because you've been obedient. Now remain in my love. Stay in this place, this relationship where you know my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. There's the conditionality of it, the conditionality of the love of God. If you want to experience true life to the full, as the Lord Jesus described it in John 10 and 10, then it demands of those who are indwelt by the Spirit to live the life that he has marked out for us. And it's a life that requires our energy and our effort. Obedience to that prescribed way of life, then, if I can say it, gains the approval of God. For those already saved by his love and by his grace, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and his completed work, then to live naturally by the power of the Spirit, the life that he has marked out for us, that prescribed way of life gains the approval of God and of our Master, his pleasure. And through that, then the disciples increasing enjoyment of God. We're told in the New Testament that disobedience a lot of it in the Old Testament but in the New Testament as well that disobedience has negative consequences most seriously an estrangement from God himself and circumstances that we would see as discipline or chastening Hebrews chapter 12 verses 5 through to 11 tell us about this the Lord disciplines those he loves yes he loves us but yet if there is a waywardness in our lives And we are not remaining in his love. And we're stepping outside of the things that God has prescribed should characterize the life choices that we make. Then we will endure hardship, as Hebrews 12 verse 7 says, as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? You notice, as children, born of God, adopted into the family of God, the love of God to do that was nothing of our effort. All of grace alone. I was wondering about the family setting as an illustration where you have the love of a parent for their child. In most circumstances, that love is a love that exists from the moment of that life coming into the world through until one is taken and beyond. But that love 
might not be expressed always. Um, whenever a child would step outside the boundaries that have been set by the parents who determine what should happen in the home or in their life and so on before they become an age when they're, in a sense, self-determining. You know what I'm saying here? So there can be an estrangement, can't there? While the love of the parent is there for the child, there can be the expression of discipline, of chastening, which is in itself a product of that love. But in that moment, it is a disapproval rather than an approval. I wonder if that might help us to understand this a little. Jesus is saying that to live in the knowledge of the approval and the love of God brings the joy of living in the realm of God's love. Because of verse 11, I have told you this so that my joy, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. What was the joy of the Lord Jesus? To always do the things that his father had said. And to be obedient in absolutely everything all the way to the cross and beyond. That was his joy, to fulfill the things of God and to honour him in everything. Now we have to be careful that the obedience that we're thinking about here does not and cannot become a false legalism, where it's just about having this veneer of doing the things that God would instruct us in his word. God is the one who sees all things. He knows our private thoughts. The Holy Spirit indwells the believer. He is always with us if we are genuine believers. We cannot escape the presence of God. Psalm 139. So in all of this, the problem is not the nearness of God. He's always present. But it's about our relationship with him that the Lord is getting at here. And he says, the, the Father has loved me because I have obeyed him. And I know his approval in my life. And I will love you in the same way, disciples, when you live in obedience to me. Just as the Father has loved me. John 10 verse 17. The reason the Father loves me, the Lord said, is that I lay down my life. Only to take it up again. In that close relationship, the Lord Jesus knew even then in John 10 that he'd come to lay down his life. And he was obedient all the way to the cross. John 14 verse 31. He says that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what the Father commanded me. Come, now let us leave. It's just at the end of the chapter before this. He says the evil one is coming. But so the world will know that I love the Father. Oh, we're going to do exactly what the Father commanded me. John 8 verse 29. One, the one who sent me, Jesus said, is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do what pleases him. Do we see something here in the life of the Lord Jesus of his joy in his relationship with the Father? As a man here on earth, we have to remember that the Lord was a man who had to go through the development process. He grew up and he knew the closeness. Remaining in the love of his Father was by the means of doing the things that the Father had said to him. I'll do exactly what the Father has said. And because of that, I know that the one who sent me is with me because he's not left me alone. I know his presence. Why? Because for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. One brings about the other. No wonder God declared on a couple of occasions, we think about it at the Lord's baptism, even before we see much of the obedience of the Lord as it's 
described for us in the Gospels through his ministry. And the voice from heaven said as he came up from the waters of baptism, this is my son or my beloved whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. We haven't seen much of his life up to this point, but the father has seen everything. And he says, I'm pleased with him. And the Lord sets out into his ministry with the approval of his father because he has kept everything that the father has said that he should do. And he goes all that way to the cross, never giving up. What's remarkable is that the son of God, when he was here in human flesh, he had to commit himself to this life of obedience. Listen to this from Hebrews chapter 5. Verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Now that's the obedience to the call to repent and believe the gospel of the kingdom. And then the expectation that we would go on in obedience. But do we not see in the writer of the Hebrews is telling us here that the Lord Jesus himself, he learned in his life here as our model. He learned obedience from what he suffered. What a remarkable thing. That the Lord would commit himself every day to do exactly what the Father had said of him so that he might remain in his love. And he would go through the suffering and you just imagine this constant, continual conversation. This is hard, but I will go your way, God. Just to make it clear, we're not saved by any effort or energy that we would expend. It's faith in the work of God. But we are saved for good works. They're the natural byproduct of this new life that we have in Christ, empowered by the Spirit. But we're not to be passive in just expecting that that sort of life will happen. As Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, he says, My dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. It's the synergy of the disciple living the empowered life by the Spirit. Looking to the commands of Christ and the commands of God. And doing them in the power of the Spirit. Working out that salvation with a fear and a reverence for God. While God at the same time is working out in our lives that which is for his good pleasure. Do we not see that in the life of the Lord Jesus? What does this life of obedience look like? Just want to bring it down to some practicalities and we're going to look at the Lord and learn from him because he's our example, is he not? Just to conclude, it's practical obedience. The Lord here was saying in verses 9 and 10, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. It's to do with obedience. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. So the direct command there that begins that you love one another. It's a natural outflow of the life that comes. 
But what about personal? I've thought about this in two ways. There are personal practices or disciplines, but there are also communal practices or disciplines that I think are necessary for us to remain in the love of Christ and in the love of God. We cannot lose our salvation. I must say that. We cannot lose our salvation. Once we are saved, we are saved for eternity if we are genuinely saved. And it's natural that we would expect to see the fruit that Jesus declares should be seen in the life of a believer. There's a question mark might come when that's not evident. But that's not for us to judge. But there is a life to be worked out that doesn't just automatically happen. It does require our energy and our effort. Think about the Lord. Reading, learning and memorizing God's word. We have that given to us in the silent years, if we can say that. Because when he comes on the scene, he's able to quote the scriptures. We see him, do we not, uh, in Luke chapter 3. When he goes up to the temple as a 12-year-old and he's asking questions. Personal prayer reliance on God. The number of times we read in the gospel accounts of how the disciples saw that the Lord went off to a solitary place alone. Sometimes all night that he might pray. Constant reminder of the importance of our conversation with God. And setting aside time for that. Associated with that is solitude. Time alone with God. I wonder how much in our busyness of our lives we, we make time for that. Undistracted time to think with God about what it is that he demands of us in our lives. Of service and sacrifice. Spending time in solitude I think then brings us to a point of confession and repentance. And maybe that's why we don't like the solitude. Because we're having to think about ourselves and it's just us and God. Confession and repentance, as has often been said, keep short accounts with God. What about fasting? The Lord taught about fasting. We can construe from the scriptures that he probably engaged in that on a regular basis. A heightened awareness and reminder that God is the provider of all things. God, I rely on you for absolutely everything. What about frugality? Remember the Lord had nothing apart from the clothes he was wearing and they weren't much. And what about sacrifice? The Lord models that for us, of course. The giving of himself so fully in his day-to-day -day living and ultimately the death of the cross. The Lord Jesus said in Mark chapter 8 verse 35, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Personal disciplines, there's more that we could think of, but they're there, modeled for us in the life of the Lord Jesus. And if he had the approval and was remaining in the love of his Father, then is it not expected that we would be in the same place, doing the same things? But what about those communal disciplines or practices? The study of God's word. Let's go back to Luke chapter, it's Luke chapter 2, isn't it? Where the Lord goes to the temple uh, as a youngster. And he's there and he's questioning the men who knew the scriptures. It actually says that he was asking questions he wanted to know. The study of God's word. It's not a, just a private thing. It's a communal thing. Online Bible study tomorrow night. Corporate worship. We see the Lord modeling this for us. He would go up at the times of the festivals. Prescribed by God when the men must go up. To honor God 
through the activities that would be associated with the temple. And the Lord would go up and enjoy the corporate worship. He was there with others at the appointed times. The Lord modeled to service alongside others, a communal work. He did it with his disciples, didn't he? He invited them in and said, let's do this together. Sends them out and empowers them to do that. Fellowship. You love the times when we see the Lord sitting and he has people around him listening to him. It might be in a home or it might be on a hillside or wherever it is. The Lord's having fellowship. And fellowship is not just spending time with people. Fellowship is spending time with people and talking about the things of God. That's a better definition of fellowship. And then you've got the Lord when he models for us as well times of communal prayer. It says he prayed with his disciples. And they came and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. They heard him pray. They wanted to pray like him. So there's a number of personal and communal practices that it would seem are necessary to keep us in the love of God and to help us to remain in his love. I want to finish with Jude chapter 20. There isn't 20 chapters, it's verse 20. Jude, of which there's only one chapter, verses 20 and 21. If you've got your Bibles there, you might want to look at them just as a, this is a, a real concluder here. Jude he may have been a, a brother of the Lord Jesus, disciple uh, after the Lord's resurrection and so on, having seen the life of the Lord. He says in verse 20, after he's warned the Christians about those who would do their own thing and how dangerous they are in the churches. He says in verse 20, but you dear friends, by building yourselves up on your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, here it is, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. The Greek construction of those two verses means that the keep yourselves in the love of God is the main thing that's in view. And the others modify that verb of keeping yourself. How do we keep ourselves in God's love? Personal, communal uh, disciplines that we thought about, modelled for us by the Lord Jesus. But here we have it laid out for us by Jude, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, and having an eager expectation of the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that will bring us to eternal life. We do those things individually. We do them together. As the Lord Jesus said, just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Remain in my love. Stay in this place, place of blessing. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and remain in his love these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full let's pray